Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. My grandmother, who's now 98, lived most of her life in a little town in southwestern Ohio called Waynesville. The town has since reinvented itself as a destination for antiquers willing to pay top dollar for what she might call junk. But when she was there, the town was the small center of a lot of small family farms. My grandmother, who's now 98, lived most of her life in a little town in southwestern Ohio called Waynesville. The town has since reinvented itself as a destination for antiquers willing to pay top dollar for what she might call junk. But when she was there, the town was the small center of a lot of small family farms, including her own. In her years there, she helped run the farm, started a dry-cleaning business, drove the school bus, served as an EMT, and worked in the sheriff's office. She was one of those folks everyone knew. On Sundays, she cooked biscuits for the prisoners in the local penitentiary. For me, growing up, she was just grandma. I didn't realize the richness of her character until years later, with age and distance, maybe even a little wisdom. In her latest poetry collection, Amy Wright takes this kind of realization and transforms it into powerful, moving, and oftentimes hilarious art. She was raised in the Appalachian region of southwest Virginia, and her poems, which she calls Cracker Sonnets, bring this region and its characters to life. Jacks Ovi, Virginia Liebus, Coralie Robbins, Lita Burke, Belle Neely, and Edna Culpepper, these are just a few of the folks whose daily grinds and deep affections Phil writes poems. And as you can tell from these names alone, Wright betrays her people with what you'd hope for from a poet, lyric delight. Amy Wright, welcome to the New Books Network. Thank you so much, Eric. Thanks for having me on. Well, I am excited to talk to you about your new book. In fact, one of four new books that have recently come out. (laughs) And so uh, I'm also hoping that you can introduce me to your muse at some point. Um, but I think it would be really great to just hear a little bit about your your background as a writer. I think you bring a really rich and multifaceted perspective to the act of, of writing. And I'd love our listeners to hear a little bit about where you're coming from. Okay, thanks. I grew up on a farm. It was my grandfather's farm in southwest Virginia. And as I got older, I mean, I fed baby calves on the farm. My parents worked in insurance. So I had a little bit of, of kind of both worlds, living in the country and um, also going back and forth to town to for various activities. And that's really instrumental. I think with most writers, it's the kind of rooted place or that feeling of where you first came of age that really um, recurs in the images and metaphors that you use. And for me, I traveled very far away from there. I um, went to Colorado. That's where I went to grad school. And 
that was when I realized the richness of the experience that I had had, that everyone didn't get to grow up on a farm and um, they weren't surrounded by the Blue Ridge Mountains. And that's when I started to appreciate it a little bit more. So it took getting away from it to really see that. So do you see yourself as, as a writer of place? Very much of culture, and um, I see the relationship between ecosystems and habitats and natural environments and culture as being intertwined. Um, So very much about the species that are in a place. It's very closely related, I think, to um, how human cultures form and evolve in in relation to place, too. So that that is a core um, aspect of my writing. That's fascinating. And, and we think about that, like, for a moment, I thought I'm, I'm speaking to a nature writer. Um, but of course, <laughs> I'm speaking to a poet. Um, and, and that approach, um, how does that begin to work itself out as an aesthetic sensibility? That's a good question. I think it's based ultimately, I'm a teacher, you know, I'm a professor at Austin P State University in Tennessee. And I'm of the Georgic tradition, you know, Virgil's poems and um, agricultural lessons as a kind of instruction, literally how to do this, how to keep bees and how to recapture your hive if they've escaped and and things like that. And so I think that's just inherent in my um, aesthetics, you know, that it's instructional and it's handy that I also teach. But um, in terms of how that plays into my writing, I think I'm always sort of teaching myself with my poems and even especially with the cracker sonnets, which are about characters and types of people that I've met. They're not as directly, um, you know, didactic or anything, but they, they certainly are a way of looking closer at the people that I grew up with. You know, you put on the lens of the the poem and, and you kind of look through that and you can see things that you didn't see before because, well, that's it seemed inherent to you or that seems like um, that's how everyone is. Um, and it's not until you kind of see from someone else's perspective or get outside your own perspective where you realize – oh, that's not how everyone is. That's very particular to this region and to this type of of person and culture. Yes, you suddenly realize that, oh, that's the water I was swimming in, and that's not what everyone swims in. Uh, Yeah, and there's this moment where your your past becomes a gift, where I think, at least for me in adolescence, it was was the curse of growing up in a certain (laughs) place, and now it's, it's the gift of growing up in a certain place. Right. Well, I would love to ask you a question about the Cracker Sonnets about what it is not, which is not usually the way I would go into an interview. Um, But in an age of confessional poetry um, and post-confessional poetry, I don't think there's the single use of of the word I in this book. Maybe in a character's (laughs) mouth, but you do not appear in the first person singular at all. Right, right. What's what's going on? Well, it's it's interesting. I mean, I think um, I, I write a lot of criticism also, book reviews and um, scholarship on, on books. And um, I found through the process of that, I, I really like creative criticism. And, you know, the most creative um, reviews end up revealing the author much more ultimately than the book. I mean, our tastes, you know, our reading tastes reveal us. And sometimes it's more interesting to see ourselves reflected through what we're looking at, to me, than to get the direct, what we think about ourselves, because we're so often wrong, um, or at least I am, um, because 
you know, you only know so much and, and you, you kind of have blinders on when you're looking at yourself. But when you look at and you describe things that you've been surrounded by, and when you describe your context, um, boy, you really reveal more than um, you might have accidentally or, or confessionally. Hmm, that's, that's interesting. So do you see the collection of, of these kind of mini profile poems as adding up to a, a kind of mosaic self-portrait? Well, I mean, I can see certain aspects of that. One of my friends just um, sent me a quote that she really liked from this book, and it was um, it was about desire. It was the, the sorority sisters poem, and and she, it talks about sisterhood and how desire will hang you up to dry. And and you know, in quoting that, I thought I, I got a sense that she recognized within that something of me and something of my, you know, sense of self, perhaps, but it, it revealed more of me than I think if I had just said, I think that desire can be really tricky. And, and, you know, you have to learn how to manage your desires or your desires can control you. And if I'd been that direct about it, I think that um, it, it just would have been obvious. But there's a kind of code um, when you write these uh, ideas into poetry. And when someone reads through them, it's really rewarding because you feel like they broke the code and they saw through to what you really meant. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's tremendously satisfying when the book goes out into the world and someone comes back and rings a note that you suddenly recognize as true. Maybe you didn't know that that note was in there. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, to turn to what, what the book actually is, um, I think that that absence of, of self, or at least that overt absence of self, makes it tremendously generous. It, it's a book that's about kind of chronicling a people and a community and a way of thinking. Um, and you just meet some, some fascinating characters. Uh, you know, I was wondering if you would read us a couple of the titles of sure. your poems, just as a, a way to give, because your titles are so great. Um, no, and they also give, give your, I think they, at least they gave me a sense of this, the world that I was going to enter. Mm-hmm. Okay, here, here are a couple. Piney Donegan fell in the feed trough. Ruby Woodard learned something new every day. Anne Christian wouldn't be caught dead baking corn pone. And Coralie Robbins showers in the dark. Those are great and hilarious at the same time. <laughs> They're like <laughs> rich and wonderful. And on your website, you, you call these kinds of characters things like apple pie rollers and Lester Flat kinfolk and one-handed fiddlers. Uh, tell us a little bit about the, this world that's populating your book. Well, there's so much wealth in the people themselves where I grew up. And uh, since I was on a farm, we didn't travel as much. I mean, of course, we took family vacations um, and things. But immediately on our day-to-day lives, we were pretty much reliant on, of course, the landscape and the beauty of that, but the people and um it wasn't, uh, there wasn't a huge population. The whole county had probably 26,000 when I grew up. And so you got to know a lot of the same type of people. And so their stories and the different ways that they looked at the world and shared their experiences were really, um, curious making for somebody. And a lot of times there are roles that we inhabit and, and, um, places would be characterized by, oh, that's owned by, you know, the vet, or that's owned by the person who has this quirk. And, and people get kind of typified, too, in, in really interesting ways by their eccentricities. Well, would you mind reading us one? 
Sure. That'd be great. I'll read the opening poem in the book. Jack's Ovi blows perfect smoke rings in Farnham's musty playhouse. Morning throttles Jax's motor, lowers her frost skirt for him, if someone else's bride. Let lambs work their way up class ladders with starter hats and Nikes, he thinks, when Colleen clicks past, ignoring catcalls, heels snapping concrete, a jar of maraschino cherries jiggling, ready to be tossed into her Alka-Seltzer. Before she drops, wasp-waisted onto the stage apron, owing nothing to no man, and off all day tomorrow. Beautiful. <laughs> so, so could you take us a little bit into to your sense of, of, of style and construction? Because presumably Jax and Colleen probably wouldn't describe their own experience using that kind of language and rhythm. Um, and one of the, the beauties of the poems is that occasionally you'll juxtapose the, the primary voice of the, the poem with individual speaking. There's an interesting layering that happens in Appalachian communities, you know, and especially uh, growing up as I did, we, we repurposed so many things. And it was so much easier to turn, say, uh, an old sink into a flower bed um, rather than you, you wouldn't throw it out. We were all very, very um, useful, you know, sa- lots of salvage work going on. And so I think to some extent that's part of the work of language. And there's a kind of ornate aspect to some of my language in the same way that um, porches back porches in, in the South can get really ornate and they just, you know, they don't necessarily always belong together. The, this chair and, and that, um, pie safe, you know, or whatever ends up making its way onto the porch. It's, it's a kind of surprise. And so I like to do that with the language is think, hmm, what if I put this bird feeder, um, not outside by the tree, but, you know, on the, um, in the living room <laughs> where it doesn't belong. And yet, you know, sometimes they end up there. Yeah, the, the diction is so rich, and I don't think that there's a boring line. Um, yeah, I'm trying to scroll through. Nope, I can't find one. Um, <laughs> yeah, so so here's an interesting thing. The, the, the lines are, um, they're not necessarily metric. Much of it doesn't scan. Um, and yet you're calling them sonnets. Could you tell us a little bit about the, the title? Um, and there's only the slightest hint as to, to what Cracker might mean. Um, inside the book, there's one poem where it comes up. Mm-hmm. Actually, my friend Tom Daly gave me that name because before that I was just calling them generally they untitled as as crack the cracker poems, and um, he suggested that I call them sonnets, and because they have a very song like quality, and I think that that's attributable to my background and to the importance of music in Appalachia and just to the rhythms of speech and and how it naturally flows certain um, in rhythms um, that you can kind of characterize as um, regional. But I, I do pay attention to, you know, the kind of hymn meter that Emily Dickinson has. That's something that I, I play around with. And I disrupt the rhythms because I do have an ear for prosody, but I really like it when it's interrupted. Uh, one of my professors said, you know, you don't notice that um, – factory that you walk by every day until one of the windows is broken out. And I think that's kind of like the the rhythm or the meters that I like the most is when they're, you hear just a little shadow of it and then it's broken that, 
you pick up on more of the the sound quality to it. Yeah, I think that there's there's a very interesting kind of move you will make where you'll just lay in a comma and bring something else out on the other side of it. Um, mm-hmm. It is flour, sugar, um, mm-hmm. lover she calls, comma, grateful. Um, and so there's this sense of cinching or, or turning. I think Nabokov called it a knight's move where mm-hmm. the language moves in a direction that you don't quite expect, like a, a knight on a chessboard. Um, mm. I like that. Yeah. Well, I wonder if you, you might read us uh, the brunettes or what they make. Sure. Because me... there we get a kind of cavalcade of characters. And I think um, in one way, I saw that as, as just one of the microcosms of the book at large, since we get this cavalcade of characters. Okay, sure. Thanks. The Barnettes are what they make. Jane shovels dirt cake onto the kids' plates. Becca blends hand soap with downy brome and milk thistle. J.D. converts his front yard into a quail sanctuary, and Reed does 360s in the mud lot behind the nylons factory. Arne and Desi devote one room in their Victorian to Robert Louis Stevenson and another to Mona Lisa. Loretta, a.k.a. Dancing Bear, bakes seven banana banana bread, which creates trouble when she operates her concession stands sans permit. Neighbors call the police when Amy Lou fires a hole into the Hoosier. J.J. puts sugar in Jesus's gas tank. Arlen paints the Dixon subway chartreuse with blue moonlight, which gets his chain status revoked. But he can't care about that now, being an artist. So that, that's a whole Dickinson novel in two pages, right? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Dickens. <laughs> Although I'm not surprisingly, Dickinson makes an appearance in my slips. Yeah, uh, yeah. Go from there. So, you know, th- there's, there's a, a question that comes up a, again and again about the, the morality of writing about other people and other lives. Was, was this an issue that came up for you, you know, capturing these portraits of people that weren't you and, and what kind of, um, what kind of, of, of portrait, really, right? Like, how do you write about other minds, other lives, other experiences that aren't yours? To what extent are you allowed to, to frame them and own them in your own art? Um, you know, this seems like a question that comes back the more we have this pluralistic culture and you know, artistic writers are trying to move outside of themselves. And mm-hmm. I don't know if, if growing up in this community, it felt like, oh, no, that's not something I wrestle with, or whether that was a question that occurred to you as you were writing these. I, that is very important to me that especially I mostly write nonfiction or in, I'm a nonfiction professor at Austin P. And so I think that it's essential to something like an essay or a collection of essays where the persona that you're ad- adopting has an authenticity. And that might be because you literally inhabited the context for a decade, or it might be because you have access to a certain um, perspective on it. But but I think it is really important that we're representing um, our cultures or perspectives accurately, and I think with a kind of love, which I know sounds a bit hokey, but I think that if you do it with love, um, a kind of meaning, respect, and action taken toward, you know, that 
that culture that you're you're wanting to represent, then I think that protects you to some extent. Now, bear in mind these are not nonfiction um, pieces, and so I, I'm not using actual names. Unlike the the holy mackerels, which is a section on my website where I asked people to contribute their real life stories of people that they know like this, and they name them and they give the birth and death dates in some cases, and um, these are, you know, the, the names are entirely fictitious, and a lot of times the details are borrowed from a composite of different types of characters. And so um, what gives me license is a little roomier, you know, in these poems, and that's one of the reasons why they are poems and, and not essays. But I think that it does the same work of representing a culture, and in this case, really positively and with a lot of humor and um a sensitivity to how they've been represented before because when I actually turned these poems into my graduate workshop at the University of Denver, I got, um, excuse me, this wasn't, I first got into the University of Colorado with these poems and that's when, so they're, they're old poems. I've had them around for a long time in a lot of different forms, but the workshop, um, really balked at this idea of cracker because it's a very sensitive and heavily laden term and, um, you know, do, does anybody have license to sort of, you know, just bandy this term about? And mm-hmm. and um, and I was trying to reclaim it um, because it has a lot of really negative connotations, and as does the, you know, Appalachian region and, and a lot of the South in general, and you know, racist connotations and backwoods, um, you know, stereotypes. And so I really wanted to work with those because, of course, that was representing me for my 20s, I mean, into my 30s. As I went to college, my accent sort of was a tell. um, And people would recognize me as, you know, from a certain area and, of course, make assumptions about that in the same way that people make assumptions about skin color or um any other kind of accent, and I, I, I wasn't ready, I guess, to own the full weight of that in my twenties. I was writing these poems, but I was kind of playing with them, and I, I would intermingle them. The, these were um, primarily about crackers as a metaphor. I was playing with the language of it, and so one example of an early title was. Um, I have emotions about crackers. I have emotions about oyster crackers in particular. And that was responding to a Gertrude Stein line where she was saying, can you have emotions about crackers? And I was playing with just the concept of, you know, the sort of saltine. And I I ended up dedicating this book to my parents, you know, based on their saltine preferences. So uh, I'm still sort of playing with it. But to some extent, I went ahead and owned the cultural connotations, which ultimately I just couldn't get away from. And and calling them, you know, oyster crackers just didn't, you know, represent it enough. And and to reinvent it in art, I think is such a redemptive gesture. You you had started this this great answer with uh, the idea of writing out of of love and respect and enthusiasm, and you know, there's that mm-hmm. famous line from Didion that writers are always selling somebody out, and I just right. I don't think it's true. <laughs> It's so interesting because I really argue in my head with that line of hers a lot because I I don't think it has to be that way. And, of course, that's why we have plenty of writers and different um, styles. Yeah, well, I want to go back to something that you touched on, which is this book has a kind of a, a supplement or a compliment, which is this this holy mackerels on your website that, that does have a, an 
ethnographic impulse. It, you know, it's mm-hmm. invitational. And I'm just wondering if there might be a listener or two out there that would be interested in, uh, well, you just, you have your contact information up there. Hey, send me a portrait. Um, could you oh, tell us a, a little bit more about that? I would absolutely love it. It's, um, I would, you don't hear enough from readers in general. And the thing about putting a book into the world is you really are trying to start a conversation on some level. I mean, I'm trying to speak, um, back to and with the, um, Appalachian writers that have come before me and also not only Appalachian, Southern too, but, but, uh, all over the country. I mean, I've, I've lived in lots of different places and we have, it's incredible how many people I've talked about, uh, talked with who are from, um, New York or California or something. And we really share a lot of the things that I had thought were, um, characteristically Appalachian. You know, they have grandparents who, who can and who do have certain, you know, kind of Southern tendencies and, um, I love to hear from them, and I would be delighted if some people would log on to that aspect of the website. And there's a um, there's a contact button, and they're free to add. I would love to have people contribute more. And and the ones that are up there are pretty nice. They are, yeah. I've, I've got some really great ones contributed, yeah. So who knows? That might be book number five. It's just a digital, <laughs> ever-growing, ever-expanding book as you move forward. <laughs> nice. Um, well, I, I'm interested. So there are, there are a lot of portraits in the book, um, you know, poems that begin with the name of a person and, and kind of unfold their world or, or their point of view. There are also, um, in, the, in the third section of the books, poems that seem much more like dense lyrics or even haiku-like in their specificity um, and attention to, to sometimes natural detail. Um, mm-hmm. I was wondering about those. How do you see those fitting in or rounding out uh, what you're doing in this collection? I think that's because these poems I've lived with for a long time in various permutations. Um, and I, my sec- actually the first book that came out, so my, the Cracker Sonnets is my second book. And um, my debut collection is um, called Everything in the Universe. And it basically does meditations on a wide variety of insect species. And that's because, well, they dominate on this planet. They actually out, outweigh us by, um, you know, pounds. And they, they, um, they often can be kind of canaries in the coal mine, so to speak, in terms of being affected early based on certain aspects of climate change. And so, and they'll, many species will persevere long after us should we um, do ourselves in. But um, that research that I was doing on the side and the natural history and, and the aspects of that were infiltrating my consciousness. So when I was coming back to revise some of these poems, um, that just naturally started coming in more. Okay, that's fascinating. So your your second book of poetry is your first book chronologically and right yeah uh, well so so i'm once again fascinated by the way you're talking about your kind of aesthetic interests and the questions that drive your poetry um especially given that you are a nonfiction writer who's done this work in nonfiction. um what kind of possibilities or what kinds of things can you do with nature writing and poems that you couldn't do in nonfiction? Like what, what does the poem open up for you? Well, one thing is the music of it. Um, you know, just the way that 
I mean, you can do that in essays. Obviously, many essays are very rhythmic and lyric essays and for an entire genre. But um, it it just opens up a kind of window into, well, with an insect, you can write a micro essay about it, but they just wanted to be, I mean, I kind of, um, I guess the music just predominated and they um it just made more sense to reflect on them with that attention poetry calls such attention and and um i think its readers tend to be willing to look that closely and it's not to say that nonfiction can't ask that same thing but i i think that a meditation on a um one of the poems is about earwigs and they they make really great mothers and and you, you could certainly write an essay about the you know the surprising you know motherly qualities of the earwig which is you know kind of an ugly little pincher bug i mean people squash them and have fears about them and and yet they're unlike many insect species they really um stand stay with their broods and they really protect them and care many of them send their um offspring off into the world but earwigs are very very loyal and protective and so you know you can write an essay about that but it was just more playful i think to put them in poems for me anyway hmm. Would you mind reading us uh, one of the poems from this collection that emphasizes the song and the sonnets, that kind of musicality? There are so many. I'm just curious as to what in, you would in, in, in the Cracker Sonnets? Yeah, that, that would be great. Okay. All right. Let me. Okay. I think Virginia Liebus's dreams are stuffed chicken wire parading promises. After two failed marriages, Virginia goes on. Sauerkraut diets, splits hogsheads of molasses with Martha, shreds deeds, her ribs, bowed pines under snow, her eyes fly-specked, windows in bright sun. She hangs upturned bells and horseshoe talismans of hope she may live beyond the life she was given. Pulls two beers clinking from the refrigerator, a sleeve of light flaring in her dark apartment. What it means to have a woman's body, she tells her daughter, is to stand at the mouth of the cave and be the cave. Bats flying out of it like hearts. Yeah, that's beautiful. Thanks. <laughs> so I'm curious if you've had a chance to, to read these poems to an audience of people like the people that are in the poems. I have not exact. I mean, I teach in Tennessee, and so I've um, I've had readings here. So yes, I guess I have. I've read in Nashville, um, and some of these poems too. Uh, many of the poems um, appeared in the chapbook "Rhinestones in the Bed" or "Cracker Crumbs," and those are very different. Those are actually the first version or the earlier version of these poems where they didn't have the character names, but I use the metaphor "crackers" throughout, and. Um, I definitely read those in Knoxville and um, and in Nashville, and I've read them around. I haven't yet gotten to read in my hometown at all, which I do hope to do of Withville, Virginia, and uh, that would be really great. Yeah, it's always fascinating to see how you know an audience responds to a self portrait, even if it's one that's you know not nonfiction. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, it also protects me, too, because, you know, I think one of the aspects about Appalachian and Southern culture, especially Appalachian culture, is it's um, 
It's privacy. It's really um, very guarded and protected. You have to um, be among the people for a long time before you really get to see what the what the culture even means. And so you don't just. Um, I don't take representing that lightly because there's a, a kind of trust that develops um, over the representation of family members and and um, extended family and all of that that uh, nonfiction complicates a little bit. And I had some ease and relaxation from that in the poems. Yes, it's nice because you don't have the, the one-to-one tie with somebody who's going to say, no, that, that's not me. No, <laughs> right. <laughs> it's always somebody else. Um <laughs> Well, you know, one aspect of, of your literary career is that you're also quite a literary citizen. Um, and we, we've heard about your, your kind of personal background. And, um, but I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about, you know, your work in the community and, um, you know, your, your various editorships and things like that. Um, because I think you're, you know, you seem to be one of those writers who's trying to uh, add to the range and diversity and richness of what's going on in American letters right now, um, as well as writing some good poems. Thanks for picking up on that. I do, I do try um, in that direction. And I think that I was inspired mostly because when I was in grad school, I taught in Colorado. And then when I got my first um, teaching job, I was in, at UT Knoxville. And I started noticing then, and certainly at the school that, where I am now, and even at workshops around the region, that... To generalize, many of the students that I taught um, tended to be more reluctant to share their voices than they were in Colorado for whatever reason. And so um, I feel like my job is to encourage students that their voices do matter and that they... um, they are worth something and that they do need to risk the fear of rejection and the um, potential disruption of family, um, you know, needs to hold on to secrets or something. I mean, they do really want to share um, and express themselves. And so with that came the encouragement of reading other people's work all over the region and, and encouraging them to um not only send out work, because I think um, at at the college level, sometimes they're willing to just send the work out fearlessly, but they don't always read the magazines that they're submitting to. And therefore, it really doesn't mean that much, as they learn later, uh, when you get into a magazine that you weren't reading anyway. Um, So, you know, but you kind of have to be told that. And I don't think anyone um, told me directly, but I kind of figured that out on my own, probably from, from making the same mistakes that many of my students make. And, and, um, and I just wanted to save them that because it's, um, there's so many more interesting ways of going about it. And of course you learn so much by reading the the journals. And um, and many of our students actually get to read for Zone 3, which is a a wonderful opportunity that I didn't have as an undergraduate. I worked on the newspaper at UVA, but when I got to the University of Colorado Boulder, I did work on Sniper Logic, which was the undergraduate journal there. And it's an incredible learning experience because you see the submissions that come in and the quality of them, of course, ranges widely. And some of them are already just this public publishable quality and it's recognizable and then some of them are far from it and in fact your work is better than that and it gives you confidence to submit and you can also see in their work as an editor just for sitting on the other side of the desk you can see mistakes that 
those writers are making that you didn't recognize that you were making. And so it's, it, I learned more as an editor, I think, than in writing workshops even at times. It is amazing what when you get that influx from the submission pile, all that you discover. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I had a, a year of reading for Triquarterly where I think I was the only slush pile reader. There were other readers that would kind of call the, oh, I know that name. But there I was with the big stack um, and it, it was, it was a, a very instructional experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I, and I think you started us off with this mention of, of Virgil and the Gorgics and the idea of, of poetry as being able to, you know, delight and teach. That's Horace's phrase. But the, the, there's this instructional value um, to encountering poetry and, and what it can convey. I'm wondering if, if when you now look at the Cracker Sonnets, which you've you know, had with you, it sounds like, for over a decade in one form or another. What, what are readers learning when they encounter those poems? Hopefully, they're learning, um, I think, the beauty and curiosity of another culture, one that has been dismissed and, and too easily um, damned, you know, as... Uh, something that you can't get anything from or something that doesn't have value or that once had value that doesn't have any value in our contemporary world. When in fact, of course, that's not true. There are all kinds of things that um, that translate in today's world um, across the board, you know, and from just the idea of community, it's a very different, I grew up with a very different kind of um, notion of community than I often find out in the cities where I've lived and um, they have different kinds of communities, but there was a a sense of, um, uh, I guess, being beholden to your neighbors because um, that was sort of you know, they were the nearest person and they saw much more of you. There's, there's a lot of exposure and, um, I'm really interested in what is seen and what we hide and protect. And it's kind of like in your family. I mean, your family, because they're there with you, they get to see the whole picture. And, um, when you are out in the world, you can hide these certain aspects of it, but there's a, a huge, um, I guess relief and also measure of acceptance when you go ahead and show the the good with the bad, and we needed more good, I, I thought. I, I, I felt like we needed more representations of the things that are really interesting and really beautiful about these small towns and um, about cultures that, I mean, farmhands, I've got poems about farmhands and, and um, you know, French friars, and a lot of that comes from where I grew up. Uh, they were not expressing themselves. There certainly weren't poetry books from, you know, the, the neighborhood kids that lived up in the mountains and you got to see rarely. And, um, I I thought there needed to be. There's, there's a wonderful poem. I can't, I can't find it right now. Um, but the, the, the main character says something like, I'm living the life that I wanted me to live it to the police. (laughs) Shreve. Shreve. Okay. That's, it's great. Um, would you read us the, the poem Habitat, which I think is this, this wonderful embodiment of some of the, the lovely things you just said. Sure. Habitat. Mac and Polly cling to the mountainside. Sphagnum moss on an abalone camper. Their father collects disability. 
They are ingenious. Manipulators of flag girls in parking lots, track stars in waffle joint back booths, French friars in Ferris wheel top buckets. At home, unable to avoid introducing them to pudding on the sofa, their young mother who makes them pretend she's their sister. Mud puppies cut through a school of crappies, patch the shallows, sprout toes sensitive as tentacles on a slug's head, ascend the muck thin-skinned as newborns, or did back then. Of course, Mac will grow up, start a tree-trimming business, meet Scotty, who isn't afraid of his wolf pup or long silences. How a hard storm closes their exit. Imperiled, water shrews and hellbender playthings give her something to lose in that nothing-much-mobile. A freshwater turtle she feeds periodically, a handful of cereal that crackles when wet like maggots. Do you want to move someplace else? Mac asks after lovemaking, her nape wet, fan blades slowing with her pulse. Eddie has a body shop in Lafayette. Scotty pulls a squirrel's tail curl through a hairbrush she keeps near the bed like all Perry women. Away from here, I wouldn't know what it looks like to be happy, she says. I would test it, the way a girl will suffer her love to prove his love real. Wouldn't hear the morning dove or see the blazing star nod its fandango ascent from a far field. No, it is better to know chorus frogs are in danger, the lake sturgeon almost lost. What are those creatures to me? I cannot be sorry never to have seen. You just got to hear how good that is. (laughs) (laughs) It's beautiful. Thanks. Thanks. Well, where do you go now after having finally let this one go? Um, you know, Virgil went to the Aeneid after the Gorgics. <laughs> I well, because they I, it really helped me that they were written um in the order that they were because the poems that came after were published first and then this poem kind of tucks in, so I don't have the pressure of of that being the first book even though it was. Um So it kind of saved me on that level. But right now, I just really, the research that I've been doing has driven me into nature writing. I was able to get invited to, um, the Kenyon Review had their first ever nature writing workshop this summer. And it was a wonderful experience that I got to participate in as David Baker's fellow. And I'm sure that this is going to um, breed more nature writing workshops across the country. And in fact, I came back and taught a nature writing workshop in Nashville. Um, and it was, you know, I, I think it's just important that we, we think about nature writing because it has to evolve too. And what is nature even now? I mean, you know, is it that park that's, you know, that preserved open space that they have or what exactly constitutes nature now? Um, cause it certainly isn't wilderness because we, we have so little of that preserved left but it's just after the sixth extinction was written you know and um after you read the new york times science articles um for me you you kind of can't turn away from that conversation without trying to um figure out how we can better reconcile our needs as humans with the needs of many, many of the other species that are threatened and endangered by our greedy behavior. 
So when you when you teach that workshop when you were in Nashville teaching it, what does what does how do you introduce a, a group of writers who are curious about this to this new nature writing? Like what is the way that you bring them in? Well, one of the things that I, I call upon the old, you know, we look at Emerson's nature, um, and then we also look at new journals like Ecotone, and um, the editor in one of the recent issues, the sound issue, said, you know, it's um, nature writing seems to always be this um, encounter where the author is walking through the woods and can recognize the scientific names of every little plant and flower by and every animal that's, you know, inhabiting this space and and then they come to this kind of epiphany of um you know a kind of enlightened state and really when i go out into the woods um you know he was saying that it's not um it's not quite like that it's not so epiphanic always and um and so i talk to them on that level because i think that nature writing really does open up the um i guess experience for many of us of being not an individual self exclusively, but participating in something larger than ourselves. And sometimes that goes in a religious direction, and sometimes it just goes into a kind of um, community sense, um, which I, I really appreciate because, of course, that's who's going to solve this. We can't make any of these decisions um, alone, and it's really industry, and it requires lots of voting and lots of people being really educated about this and coming together. Um, but, you know, again, then when I start thinking about that community, then it, it just winds back to my original concept in the Cracker Sonnets and the closeness of the community that – I've experienced and why it feels so important to me and natural and inevitable and why we have to kind of speak across communities sometimes and across contexts because, of course, there's a, a an incredible um, benefit to having that affinity with a particular people, but it can also be very dangerous because it can be used to exclude a lot of other people. And so you have to think, okay, what do we have in common and what distinguishes us and how can those be used to best effect? It seems like writing can play a, a role in writing across those potential misunderstandings. Right. And and I think nature writing, you know, we, we have a kind of avenue to do that because nature is, is sort of, um, a temp, you know, a, a backdrop or a, a neutral area that we have in common. Well, before I let, let you go, I want to ask you one more question about your sensibility, which I think may tie into what we're talking about, um, that you don't see in a lot of, of poets, uh, which is your sense of humor. And um, you know, Joyce Carol Oates had a, a similar beef about nature writing that she voiced a while back. You know, she said, it's always epiphanic. It's always Gretel Ehrlich transcending herself. And she was like, when I go out, I get stung and bitten. And I, I want more stuff about the, the horrible camping trip and how nature just can suck. Um, and it, it was very funny. And I think um, there's, there's a really wry and rich sense of humor in the Cracker Sonnets and in your other work. Um, you know, how do you see that that working? A lot of times when, when people think I'd really like a, a good, rich laugh, they don't go to poetry. Um, and yet they'll find those in your poems, along with a lot of other experiences. Oh, good. Thanks for saying so. Well, I, shouldn't uh, poetry be funny, too? I mean, I think there's that great um, Frank Zapp album where he says, does humor belong in music? And I think, yeah, humor belongs anywhere that you can um, 
you can get it. So um, there, it, it makes it more fun, and you have to have a little levity um, about yourself when you're looking at nature writing, when you're looking at um, culture writing. You have to be a little bit light when you um, a little bit playful with it, or you can get a, just bogged down. I think with the um, the constraints. Yeah, it starts to to feel a little ponderous and heavy mm-hmm. um, in a way that maybe isn't even accurate to our own experience. Right. Well, Amy Wright, thank you so much for being on the New Books Network. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you for inviting me. I really had fun. Well, I hope you'll come back with one of your other half dozen books that are coming out. <laughs> <laughs> thanks. Thanks. I'm Eric LeMay, and you've been listening to an interview with Amy Wright, author of Cracker Sonnets on the New Books Network.